Well, good morning, Maranatha. Welcome once again. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Glad you've come to worship Christ with us today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. So if you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. If you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, it'll be page 865. Now at this time, while you are finding your way to our passage for the sermon, I usually mention the Connect Cards. Uh, I ask that you fill them out, and I, and I still want you to do so, but today I want to talk to you about community groups, because community groups really are where the life of the church is experienced here at Maranatha, and it's really where the most of Maranatha is what you'll receive through the body of the church. Randy, our discipleship director, uh, he uses this quote a lot. He says that there are churches with community groups and there are churches of community groups. And we here at Maranatha, we desire to continue to be a, a church of community groups because, again, we live life with one another. And it's where, in those groups, it's where you will recognize or where you will have the opportunity to witness the gospel transformation take root in us that we talk about each and every week. So if you're not in a community group, if you're not part of one, I would love for you to to do so. And if you have attached yourself to a community group and you haven't been faithful, please go. Be there. Be a part of the body in that way because it is such a great blessing uh, to be with those people as we're a church that loves to pray with and for one another, but also to be known by each other. So I want to encourage you to do so. Again, today we're in Acts chapter 11. Today we have Hobie Bond to read our passage. So if you would, if you're able, stand with us out of reverence of God as his word is read aloud. And again, this is Acts chapter 11. Verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat, please, and I will pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have it from you, that we can hear from you on a daily basis. I pray, Lord, today that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that will receive this truth and really this challenge that's here in the text. Help us to honor you. Help us to glorify you in all ways and let us be the church that you desire for us to be united and centered around your son, Jesus, but also um, committed to one another. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to represent you in this world and 
um, recognize that you are building your kingdom. Lord, be with us again today, in this moment, but also in the days to come to be uh, strong worshipers. Give us greater faith in this moment. We love you. We trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'll tell you, after reading this passage, after studying it this week, I was reminded just how much is actually crammed in the timeline of the book of Acts. And because of that, Luke, at times, gives us a lot of details as a way to understand all the things that are happening. But at other times, he just sort of sums it all up, right? He just sort of gives us a bit of detail with just a few words to sort of move us along, right? And we don't really fault him for that. We, we shouldn't fault him for that. After all, systematically, it has to be this way. We know that the book of Acts actually spans some 30 years, so it would be relatively impossible to get all of those details, all the things that actually happened into one sort of opportunity for us to read. But there is so much going on at once that if you don't pay attention, you can get confused, right? You can sort of get lost in the moment. My wife and I, we were watching this particular show, and we were on, I think it was like the second episode, uh, the, the second to last episode of the first season, and this really important thing happened, at least we thought it was, but for a moment, we were like, who is this person, and why is this thing happening? It just didn't make sense in what we actually thought was going on. And to be honest, I don't really get lost that often in shows like this, but I was thoroughly confused. But that's what Luke is actually doing here for us. That's what's happening in Luke's reporting. He's actually jumping the timelines and moving around for just for a quick second as a way to explain what's going on. And he actually takes us back three chapters. He takes us all the way back to chapter 8, where it was that Saul was viciously persecuting the newly covenanted church. And he's, again, Luke does this as a way of reference. He does this as a way to help us understand what he's about to tell us. He does it to explain how what has happened has happened, and also to serve us with an explanation as to why these Christians are not with those other Christians. Now, spoiler for this episode or this sermon, it all has to do with God's eternal providential plan of redemption, right? You probably saw that coming. It's all connected. All of this is connected to each other. And since this is all connected, let me quickly go back over what happened in chapter 8. Let me just give us the context of what's going on here and what went on then so we can understand that. Back in chapter 8, Saul, or Paul as he's often called, was at that time a devout follower of the way of the Pharisees. And he's even later on called a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he was most strict in following all of Israel's rules. But this devotion led him to eventually desire to take extreme measures to stop what he saw was as, or to, to stop what he saw at that time as unfaithfulness to our creator God. And those extreme measures brought about within him a willingness to murder men and women who wouldn't fall in line. Therefore, this led to a sort of exodus out of Jerusalem. This, this uh, persecution brought about this leaving, this scattering of people. And these main people that left were the Hellenistic Jews, as we learned back in chapter 8. Uh, these Hellenistic Jews who began to believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, that he truly was the promised one of God, the one that was proclaimed. And these 
Hellenists, as they were called, they carried that identification because they were not actually native to Jerusalem. All right? They were Jewish, but they weren't native to Jerusalem, that city. Therefore, they were in some ways a bit culturally Greek, all right? uh, which attributed to why they fled, because they were being particularly targeted. And this scattering, this scattering of these people, providentially, as we learned, led to Philip evangelizing in Samaria. It also uh, led to him sharing the truth with that Ethiopian eunuch on the way to Gaza. The dispersion also was God's way of preparing Peter for the work that God had for him to do. But also, all of this was a catalyst for Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, as he thought that he was marching off to go and retrieve those unfaithful worshipers, those false worshipers. But rather, what was actually happening was he was walking directly into God's sovereign plan, which was to bring about his conversion. So all of these things are connected. And with that context, we are now caught up to what Luke is talking about here in this passage, okay? Because through what God allowed to happen back in Jerusalem, through that hard and evil persecution, those exiting Christian Jews, as they scattered again to Samaria and to Joppa and other places, and also according to what Luke tells us here, some also went to uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Cyrene, and Antioch, and I imagine many other places, God's providential plan continued to spread out, continued to expand. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, this is exciting. If we sit back and we actually just sort of process what's going on here, again, this is exciting because what we're reading about is these people who were far off, who lived in far off places, they were hearing the gospel. And it wasn't just that they were hearing the gospel, but in fact, they were turning in faith to the Lord. That is glorious, and that should be celebrated. We should have our hearts leaping in joy for what we are reading and what we're actually recognizing is going on in this passage. That is glorious, and I don't really want to be a downer here, but I also want to point something out. I want to point something out, a common practice that possibly for us also might be an easy place for us to gravitate into. You see, in verse 19, Luke tells us that those traveling Jewish Christians at first sought to only share this greatest of news with the other Jewish people that they came across. They, at first, only shared this good news with people who were just like them, the people that they were most comfortable talking with and interacting with. Now, obviously, we can get really far into the weeds on this. We could really take this down a long rabbit trail as... We work through where and with who we draw our cultural lines with and how does that actually play out in, the, in our living out the life of Christ. But even though it's a very important conversation, and we should have that conversation, I want to point out something particular. I want to point out that all of us, every single human that has ever walked this earth, we all are exactly the same in one way. 
It doesn't matter what our cultural dynamics are or our backgrounds, our ethnical uh, families, what they look like. All of us are exactly the same in one major way. Therefore, we all share in a particular kind of need. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need a righteous Savior to ransom us because of the sin debt that we have accrued, which is now owed to our sovereign Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done, or who your family is. All of us have a sin debt that we have accrued, and it is owed to a Heavenly Father. And we need a righteous Savior to ransom us. Paul speaks about this in Romans 3, 19 through 24. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. What glorious news. That's really what we talk about each and every Sunday. What glorious news. So please, Maranatha, please, let us not be arrogant in this. Let us not be selfish with this great gift that we've been given, this gift of grace, this merciful blessing that has been laid upon us. Rather, let's openly and often as possible share and declare this truth, the truth about Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the promised one, who is before the beginning and who will be here at the end of all time. Jesus is Messiah for all of those who will repent. Let's share that gift. Let's share what's been given to us. It's a wonderful and glorious purpose and opportunity. Maranatha, Jesus is our gift of grace. Again, it is a merciful blessing. We've been given what we don't deserve, and we've been given more than what we deserve, both grace and mercy. And we are commanded, because of that, because of the life that we've been given, we've been commanded to be about the building of his kingdom. That is our purpose. Now, to get back to those scattering people that Luke is talking about here, it should be obvious that they eventually did share the news with people who were not like themselves, Eventually, they did turn outwardly, and they did speak to those who did not yet know the promised Messiah. And the obvious evidence here is simple, right? It's us, right? We are sitting here in this church, worshiping and working to rightly live our lives for Jesus' glory. No matter the trial that we face, no matter the various kinds of difficulty that uh, befall us, we have been included. And therefore, we are now able, also able to count it all joy with the hope that Christ would bring about his full effect. We attach to that lineage. We attach to these people who are sitting or who we're reading about as we sit here. In our text, Luke tells us that it was to the Hellenists also that they preached. All right? And that's true, of course, but here, this title, Hellenist, is actually not referring to the Hellenistic Jews that we just talked about. It's not talking about the Hellenistic Jewish population that left Jerusalem. Rather, Peter is speaking, uh, he's referring to the Greek-speaking people in that area. He's speaking to the people, the Gentiles, the people that are outside of Israel or outside of uh, the covenants in Israel, as it were. 
They, they, they were, he was speaking about them because the, the Jewish people who were being sent out or who were scattering, they were exemplifying this sort of inclusive story, this inclusive sort of preaching and evangelism for all people and to all people. Because all must be told about Jesus. Every person must be told about Jesus and how he has come to rescue us from the tyranny of sin and death. It is all of our responsibility, every last one of us, not just the elder, not just the pastor, not just the deacons, not just the people who carry the title of staff member at a church. Every single one of us, the united body, the whole church, all of those who belong to Christ carry that responsibility. We carry that purpose with us. And then, as it said, a great number of people turned to the Lord. Through that effort, a great number of people turned to the Lord. Now notice something. That... I, if you want to follow in their example, which you should, you should desire to follow in their example. If you do desire to do this, then you must pay attention to the working of that plan. We must understand sort of the methodology of this all, because what we see happening here in this passage is what we see in the rest of Scripture. It's the same thing over and over again. What we see is the proper methodology for biblical evangelism. Yes, the people did preach the truth. And yes, we should preach the truth as well. But it was God who called the hearers to believe in him and therefore be saved. It is a necessity to understand proper evangelism, biblical evangelism. Yes, we are called to go and preach. But we don't call and preach to save. We go and preach in hopes that the Holy Spirit saves. It is God's work. You see, in our faithful efforts, yes, we might be honored enough to be the person who is called to plant the seed of faith, or even if we get the chance to water that seed of faith with truth, but it is always, it always will be the Lord who brings the growth. That's just how it is. That's what the Bible declares. It's simple. It's plain. It's in 1 Corinthians 3.6, if you want to look it up. 1 Corinthians 3.6 says that Paul plants, Apollos watered, but God is the one who brings the growth. Now, as Luke continues reporting, as we know, this mainly Gentile church was growing exponentially. And of course, Jerusalem heard about it, right? They, they, they were concerned. They're not concerned. They were, um, they were considerate. They wanted to know what was going on with this mainly Gentile church, this new church. They heard about it, and they wanted confirmation. So the Jerusalem Christians, they send Barnabas, right? They send this man, this man whose name means encouragement. We met him back in Acts chapter 11. They send Barnabas to first corroborate the stories. Is what we hear happening actually happening? But they also sent him to assist this newly formed church in the training up of the new believers, that's an important element of the church. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." Now, as this new church continued to grow, in fact, we could say it was swelling, right? This is, there's two times in four verses that it talks about how a great many people, a great number of people were being uh, turned over to the Lord. Barnabas realized something. Barnabas, Barnabas realized 
that he needed assistance. He needed help training these new believers. And this is important because I, I believe that it's God's desire that no one human leader be the focus or the champion for a church. No matter woman should be the focus or the one that everyone leans into, it must be the body. There should be a collective ownership and leadership. I think that is the wise expectation given to us. We see it in the plurality of elders. We see it in the workings of the deacons. We see it in the, in the members of one another. And I think that's what they're attempting to do. D.L. Moody um, is a famous man, a famous pastor, uh, has a, a school in Chicago. D.L. Moody is famous for expressing that every new Christian needs a task to be given to them. Every new Christian needs a task to take charge of because that new task right away will foster their own faith. It will foster ownership of the faith that they've been given. Moody is also quoted in saying, I would rather put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. I would rather have 10 people do the work than have one man do the work of 10. Maranatha, we are in this together. We as this church, we are in this together as a united body. And apparently Barnabas thought this same way. And it's why, in part, that he went and got Saul, who was back in his hometown of Tarsus. Back in Tarsus, learning and growing and training and likely planting a church and possibly going through some of the trials and uh, various difficulties that were laid before him that he speaks about in his, apostles, in his epistles. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is fun, right? It's fun, and you all kind of giggle because we're Christians. We are also called Christians, so we're sort of looking at ourselves in the Scriptures. And interestingly enough... This is only the first time, or this is the first time, of only three times that the Bible actually uses the term Christian. Isn't that strange? In the Bible, only three times is the word Christian used. It's used here in verse 26. It's used later on in Acts 26, verse 28, and then again in 1 Peter 4, 16. Only three times. And historically, the reason for that title, I think, is a bit cloudy. See, a lot of the times, a lot of the commentators that I've read and a lot of the preachers that I've heard, they really like to lean into the fact that people didn't like the Christians. Like to lean into the fact that these Christians, they weren't liked because they were pushing in on these people's sinful way of life. And that's true, and, and possibly, yes, they didn't like them. So to get back at them, to sort of really grind their gears, they were going to call these people this really nasty name. They were going to start calling them Christians. Gotcha but I think that's weak. I actually think it's pretty uh, uninformed. It lacks understanding because other historians, other commentators, others that I think are a bit more level, they comment that this name or title just means that they follow Christ. If you just look at the word and its definitions and how it's put together, it just means that we follow Christ because the ending there, the suffix, the I-A-N part, just means belonging to the party of. That's all it's trying to say. So essentially, by calling a person a Christian, all you're really saying is that they are a follower or that you belong to the Christ. 
As it was at that time, in the same way, if you were a servant of Herod, you were a Herodian. Right? You were a follower of Herod, so you're a Herodian. You are a follower of Christ. You are a Christian. So if we tie all of this together, what we get is that we actually share our good name with those same saints who were also just desiring to be known as servants of Christ. They're just followers of Christ. They belong to the Christ. Therefore, we can gladly today wear this moniker of being a Christian. It's not some sort of like nasty nickname for us. It's a badge that we can wear that we are Christians, that we are followers. We are servants of Christ, servants of the Lord. Now, we do know that just by taking claim of a name, it doesn't make you what it stands for, right? To be Christian, you must be saved by Christ. You must have yielded yourself to him as it is for freedom that you have been set free. To be called Christian, you must be saved. To be called Christian, you must have yielded yourself to him. You have been set free by Christ for freedom. We live for him, and he is where we get who we are. It is through him that we receive our identity. He is our foundation. He is where we get all of our worth. Let me explain this by sharing with you sort of an interesting story about Alexander the Great. And I've shared this story before in the past in other sermons, but the story goes something like this. In the midst of this great battle, there was this cowardly soldier that was brought into the tent of Alexander. And this, uh, the officer who brought in this soldier, he tells the king what this young man's name was and what he had done. And Alexander then stands up. He moves towards the young man. He stands over him and he asks is this true? Is your name Alexander? The scared soldier says, yes. He says, were you named after me? The frightened man says, yes. He says, you have two options then. You can either go back and fight and honor that which has been given to you, or you can die now in your dishonor. Because it matters. The title that we carry, that we profess, that we, that we confess, that we proclaim to others, it matters. Now, titles don't make the man, but too many have claimed with their lips which has never occurred in their heart. Too many have professed Christ when what is necessary has not occurred yet in their heart. Therefore, you see, Maranatha, it matters how we honor the Lord. It matters that we honor the Lord in all that we do as we carry the name Christian. It's an honor to do so. It matters. Let's move on. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. As I was reading that early in the week, I was honestly a bit puzzled. I was sort of confused as why Luke was not reporting more about Barnabas and 
Paul and the things that were going on in Antioch, all, Antioch, all of those good things that were actually happening. If I would have done this, if I would have been uh, writing as Luke is, I probably would have just continued on with that information that was so exciting and so joyful and wonderful and, and glorious about the church growing and expanding. How Barnabas saw God's hand in and through and upon all of the things that were happening for these people about how despite the reality that they were all new believers and then therefore likely uh, they were walking with one another even in the troublesome elements of their brand new spiritual walk and even more, and even more expected how they probably struggled to make the theological connections between how they felt and what they were learning. I probably would have talked about that. Because despite all of that, despite the, the, the realities of what a new church experiences, a new faith goes through, which was plain to Barnabas and which we've experienced ourselves, Barnabas rejoiced over it. He rejoiced over it all. Luke says that he was glad for it. And I think this is because he understood God. He, he recognized God's glory that was happening in Antioch and what was going on because he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas exemplified for them and to them the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. He exemplified this, that for them. Again, that's just the fruits of the Spirit. If you want to study that, that's in Galatians 5. This is the outpouring of the faith that we carry with us as Christians. But instead, as the Holy Spirit is obviously wiser than me, Luke moves forward down this timeline. He moves forward down the timeline to point us to something incredible. Something, as you think about it, that could be a bit surprising. He points us to how these new believers show incredible maturity. They show incredible maturity because it just so happened that through this prophet that comes to them, the prophet Agabus, they learned about something that was about to happen. They, they, they heard about something that was going to happen that God was going to bring about. Now, a quick side note about prophets. God's prophets, when they spoke for him, they only spoke what was true and nothing else. That's the only thing they would say. A true prophet will only speak what is true and nothing different, which is why I imagine we are given that little detail about when exactly that famine took place because we're told it's going to happen and then we're told, oh, it happened, right? Prophecy is never meant to be used to mystify people. Prophecy is never meant to be used to mystify people or to bring about a kind of mysteriousness about the future which people can focus on, which people can, can be consumed by. Rather, prophetic words were given as a way to be determined towards the will of the Lord, to understand what we are to do, what purpose are we supposed to follow. They are to cause us to be determined in a direction for the Lord. Again, true prophets are never wrong. Therefore, their words will always be in the aim of God's will. But again, it's the maturity of this new church that Luke is highlighting. Because you see, in that maturity, they recognize just how God uses his people to not only bring about his will, but also how we are used to serve, support, and care for one another. It's incredible maturity for a new church to understand, that it is important, that it is our responsibility, not only just to do God's will that he declares, but also we are the means to support 
and serve and care and embrace and bear burdens for one another. You see, the aid that they were going to collect for this famine and then send it back to to the Jerusalem church, they did so faithfully, and hear me, willingly. They did so faithfully and willingly because they recognized just how much the Jerusalem church actually spiritually blessed them, and since they couldn't exactly repay the favor or return the favor, they gave out of what they had. They gave from what they already possessed. They gave what they could according to their own ability, Luke says. And that brought about a way of worship through that giving of gifts that was a material blessing. Some can give this spiritual blessing. Some stand and, and declare truth and do these things. But we together are called to use the means that we have, the ability that we've been given to be about the building up of the church, to this being the support of the church We are to give material blessings. And I think, honestly, that it would be an encouragement to all of us if we studied 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Because there it talks about this particular giving, but it also explains really the the, the biblical call, the reality of the spiritual maturity that it takes to be both spiritual and materially generous. To give of yourself, but also of your things. So I want to encourage you to, to grab a member of our church and walk through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 with them. Maybe study it in your community group. But this is important for us to, again, recognize the connection of how we are to be spiritually and materially generous as Christ's church, as Maranatha. And what a glory that is. What a glory it is to give of ourselves for a purpose, Right? to sacrifice for the Lord. What a glory it is that when people walk in here, they recognize that this place is different than the world. It's different than what it is out there. People say to me all the time, something is different about the community here at Maranatha. What a glory that is. What a blessing. So I want to exhort you with something. I want to exhort you to work at having that same effect wherever you are. Because listen, Christian, you possess the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the hand of the Lord is upon you. So be about the building of his kingdom. Be about the building of his kingdom wherever you are. It is the greatest of gifts that we have on this earth to live for him, to sacrifice for him, to give of ourselves. Let's be that kind of church that is obviously different in the world because it's only here. It's only in the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, that we can receive real fulfilling peace and hope that can carry us on into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you so much. You are so good to us. The grace you pour out on us is at times overwhelming. The mercy that you show us is also more than we deserve. Help us, Lord, to honor you in all of our ways. Help us to be the church you desire for us to be. Help us to glorify you in all, in all of our ways. Just love you so much. So grateful for your son and that you've allowed us to know you through your spirit. Thank you for letting us carry your name. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of your spirit. Amen.